you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Ezekiel's book, the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. We're going to begin in chapter 14. I am so thankful that uh, for Dave Paxton preaching for us last week here. Uh, I was here at the 8 o'clock service, then I was at Island at 9.15. Andres Lavanderos preached for me there, but uh, I did not make it back to the 10.45, and, and uh, I was in, a, in the panhandle that evening uh, leading at a conference. So just uh, so thankful that we have men that can step up and bring the word, and what a great message it was last week as Dave finished up the second part of Ezekiel 13. Today I begin with the first part of Ezekiel 14. So we'll have the scriptures on the on the screen, I think. We, we may have it. Good. We've got it working again. We're, we're hoping to go um, by Christmas Eve this year to be uh, video and live stream for those that are unable to be here with us in person. And so we're working on our video, and that'll change over the next few months to, to make that accessible for our, our homebound individuals and maybe even those that are out of town, maybe some in the military that are unable to, to, to join or to be at chapel or to be at a church local where they are. So um, we all right? Oh, thank you. Water, thank you. Uh, did you already drink part of it? No? <laughs> this lid is then open. Oh. All right, it's good. Thanks. Ezekiel chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols. That I, excuse me, may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are all estranged from me through their idols. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent. And turn away from your idols, and turn away your faces from all your abominations. For any one of the house of Israel, or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who separates himself from me, taking his idols into his heart, and putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to the prophet to consult me through him, I, the Lord, will answer him myself." And I will set my face against that man. I will make him a sign and a byword and cut him off from the midst of my people. And you shall know that I am the Lord. And if the prophet is deceived and speaks a word, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet. And I will stretch out my hand against him and will destroy him from the midst of my people Israel. And they shall bear their punishment. The punishment of the prophet and the punishment of the inquirer shall be alike that the house of Israel may no more go astray from me, nor defile themselves any more with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people, and I may be their God, declares the Lord God. We live in a, in a cultural reality where there still is a semblance of religiosity among many. In many avenues of culture today in America, as far as we have drifted from biblical orthodoxy and Christian teachings, there are still times when pseudo-Christian terms and thoughts pop up every now and then in pop culture and in life. We know that in Europe, there are many of the, much of church history is there in, in Europe, and the Reformation started there. There are these large buildings that are still there throughout Europe and uh, that area. But by and large, that culture is self-defined. And I think there's a lot of evidence to prove it to be true as a post 
Christian culture. When we go to the UK, that is uh, a phrase that's used, even knowing that in Wales there was a, a huge revival in the early 1900s, and I think it led to over 90% of the Welsh people claiming to be Christian. But since then, even now, it's less than 1%. And even though the buildings are still there, many of them have been boarded up and shut down, while at the same time, I am excited to say that through the work of the Holy Spirit and bringing uh, young, some young people to the Lord, there is a semblance of a resurgency of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. A post-Christian culture is a culture that says, been there, done that, dragged a church already, don't need that anymore. And America is not far from that, especially if you go outside what has been deemed the Bible Belt. I was with uh, Cam Triggs in Grace Alive Church last Thursday evening, and the statistics on Orlando, the Orlando area, is, is unbelievable. It's the number nine least churched area in America. Uh, the, the, it's like 78 or 78 or 80 percent of the people in the Orlando, greater Orlando area have not gone to church. And you sit there and go, well, how can that be? You have all these mega churches down there. Because it's one of the fastest growing areas in the U.S. And, and because it's outside the Bible Belt, it's a reality. The Bible Belt ends at about, a, you know, a, uh, there's a rest area north of Daytona. I think that's where it ends. I was talking with Cam and Bradley. I said, once you start going into restaurants and have to ask for sweet tea, you know you're not in the south anymore. <laughs> and that happens. The further south you go, the further north you are. And the unchurched is, is, a, is a huge reality in that area. And Jacksonville is not far from that. Our community, our culture is not far from self-defined post-Christianity. However, our community has post-Christianity with just a little, a little shaking of, of pseudo-Christianity because pseudo-Christianity is very much in, in, alive and well. We were watching a TV show this week. It was a new courtroom drama, and I think there was a nun on the episode that was being sued, and, and her court-appointed uh, lawyer looked to her, and, and, just, and, and I, don't even, I, I remember this. I wasn't watching the whole episode, but I remember this phrase because it kind of shocked me. And the, the, uh, the lawyer looked to her and said, well, you know what the Bible says? The Lord helps those who help themselves, so get up there on the stand. And I sat there, and I don't. And what's worse is knowing that it's written it, it, because it's pseudo Christianity, and it works in the storyline. But what's worse is when Christians believe that's in the Bible. In fact, the opposite is what the Bible says. But there is enough pseudo Christianity and religiosity, and and praise the Lord and God bless America going on that that we sometimes can fool ourselves into thinking that it's all good and we're all going to be okay. And cultural Christianity rises. And let me just say, where in a culture where we live today, cultural Christianity rises exponentially on an election year. Because as long as it can be used to the advantage of someone who wants some votes from someone who claims to know God, it will be used in that way. Amen, hallelujah. But it's been that way for hundreds of years. This is nothing new. But the wise would be willing to understand that cultural Christianity is very real, and that reality is increasing, and the version of God that is often declared outside of a biblical orthodoxy 
is a God that is not where we are made in His image, but a God that is made in our image. And that's the human story. It's not that humanity hates God. We just want to make sure we have the right to build Him. As long as God has a sense of fairness that matches my preconceived idea of fairness. As long as God has a sense of love that matches the world's definition of love. As long as God likes what I like, doesn't like what I don't like, and behaves the way I want Him to, God is fine. And that's the Christianity that grows in a culture that's abandoned biblical orthodoxy. That's not unheard of. It's happened before. It just seems to be right upon us, and I just want to make sure we're awake. That we have the discernment to recognize it, what it is. The lie of the enemy resonates in the hearts of mankind today, just as it did from the very beginning of the human story. Let me take you back to the beginning of the human story. Now, the, the human story begins in Genesis, right? That's where God, who has been eternal pres- eternally present, creates the, the heavens and the earth and the, and the animals and the planet and humanity. And he creates this garden, and he puts two individuals in the garden, Adam and Eve, the first two individuals. It's a perfect place. It's an amazing concept when you think about it. And in the midst of that garden where you have Adam and Eve, the only two human beings on the planet, the first created ones, they are the only beings made in the image of God. Image bearers, we will say. Now, sometimes people say, why do you always talk about people being image bearers? I think because it's very important that we get this. Because we live in a culture, we live in a, a, a an understanding where, well, God made everything, everything bears His image, and that's not true. Everything bears His fingerprints, but I don't, not, not all creation bears His image, for only humanity are the image bearers of God. I was listening to a podcast this past week, you may be aware of this story, it was in the Guardian newspaper out of London earlier this week. Uh, this is not tr- uh, typically the story you're going to get on your 24-hour news station of choice, whether you're a CNN, an MSNBC, or a Fox Newser. But this will be the news that you'll get if you if you have an aggregator kind of throw some news reports at you every now and then. This took place in Bronx. The Bronx Zoo in New York has some elephants in it. Now, I don't know how many of you are keeping up with your elephant news. But there's an elephant in the Bronx Zoo named Happy. Happy's older. He's 30 years old or so, I guess now, maybe older than that. Um, Happy was captured with six other baby elephants many years ago. Guess what their names are? It doesn't take a genius. Doc and Grumpy and Dopey and Happy. All right. Apparently, Happy's not happy, and Happy has a lawyer. And, uh, And this is happening. So a lawyer is representing Happy and has gone to court declaring Happy should be viewed just as the chimpanzees were a few years ago with all the rights and privileges of personhood. Now you may laugh at that, but I'm going to tell you this is going deeper. You better better hold on to this one. Personhood. So if the elephant, which I... There is, I mean, there is no way that the elephant's sitting there just doing elephant things and says, you know, I'm calling Morgan and Morgan. There's no way that is happening. But somehow, some way, a lawyer is secured, and the terminology is that the elephant sought the lawyer. No, that's the terminology. And the lawyer representing happy in the court of law, and the court, the trial apparently is going to happen or is happening. 
And it's all about a declaration of personhood for an elephant. And you might be going, well, that's ridiculous. Let me just say, there's buzzwords in the culture, and the buzzword of personhood is one that is used often for those of us who are self-defined pro-life anti-abortionists. Because we would declare that the personhood of an individual does not begin at a moment after conception, but begins at conception. So, so this word is now being applied to, well, it was the chimpanzees, and now it's the elephant. And the, the trial is because of where he's kept. It's not fair. It's not right. He needs to be released. It's a dangerous place. Other elephants killed some other elephants. They got mad, which leads you to, are we going to charge the other ones for murder? I mean, you're going to have to go there if you're going to go with this as a person. Now you're going, what's the big deal? That's kind of funny. That's kind of ludicrous. Well, one, not only does it open the door wide open for some really interesting lawsuits, but here's something else you need to consider. The article out of The Guardian alluded to, and I forget the professor's name. I have to look look it up again. But a professor who has been... Uh, an advocate for, for animal rights to this degree, okay? So, so let me just, just declare something. God made all animals, all creatures, and he loves them all, but only human beings are image bearers, okay? So there is an order. That doesn't, people don't like that. That's, that's the way it is. And, and this sociologist who has written these, these articles, journal articles, and teaches at a university has declared that personhood, that phrase, should be defined for those beings who are viable and valuable to society. So now you've got a term with a definition that goes further than you want to because here's what that definition leads to. We live in Florida, and there are many assisted living homes in Florida. There are many nursing homes in Florida. There are good ones and there are bad ones. That They are all over the place. Why? Because we have an aging population. And at some point in the aging population, health-wise and the needs and the schedule, the need is for someone else who can to take care of our elderly who need that help. Now, that, that we know there are all these tragic stories of people that are just kind of put away in these homes and no one ever visits and they never get, they, they're just kind of, kind of, and that's a sinful reality. But if you're defining personhood as viable and valuable, let me just take you to where that leads. That leads to no need for nursing homes. Are you following me? Because if, if, if these seniors who are no longer able to physically care for themselves are not a valuable and viable in, individual in society, society then decides euthanasia is the answer, and let's just end their lives. This is a this is the world you live in, and I do too. This philosophy that's all about an elephant going to trial, in the article says, the 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 danger is. Here's what the article says, and it's not a it's just a report. The danger is what this does for disabled children and other people. You're going to disable children and other people. Because if your definition is valuable and viable, not only do you lose the need for nursing homes on that end, you go with the quote from the professor who said, toddlers are not valuable and viable, and they're not as smart as certain breeds of pigs. 
And when the image bearer of God is devalued to such a degree that a toddler is less than a pig, then personhood does not mean personhood any longer. It becomes a term used for our own desires so that we can be God and determine who lives and who dies. This is a modern, postmodern, technologically advanced, enlightened society that we live in. And sometimes people don't even realize, well, that's a crazy story about an elephant going to trial. It's not about an elephant going to trial. It's about a devaluation of the image bearers of God. Now, why in the world, why in the world would the enemy seek to devalue the image bearer of God? Because the enemy cannot take out God, therefore he does what he's always done. Let me take you back to Genesis chapter 3. This is a story you might know. You've got the garden, you've got Adam and Eve, I mentioned that, and here's what it says. It says, the serpent, that's the enemy, Satan himself, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, which is already a weird story, because now you've got a talking snake. And he says to the woman, look at her, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Let me just pause here, we'll leave that, leave that up there, go back to that other verse. This is how it always works. Just in case you think there's any new news or anything, this is how it always works. Did God really say... Now let me ask you the question. You're Eve, you're Adam, even Adam are standing there. Adam is just kind of standing there. Eve is standing there, and, and that's who he goes to. And, and, and here's, what, here's what the enemy says. He says, are you not, did God say you can't eat from any tree of the garden? And Adam should have spoken up. Adam chose not to. Eve spoke up and, 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 and is asked this question. But, but let me ask this question. Is this what God said? No. Okay, so let's go to the next verse. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees of the garden. So she gets this right from the midst of the garden. But verse 3 says, God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So there are two trees in the center of the garden. One is the tree of life, and one is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life, eat all the fruit you want to, Eve and Adam, no problem. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, one rule. Is that the rule? No. Okay. So, <laughs> why doesn't Adam speak up? I don't know. Why is it when church is over, you sit in your car and you say, where do you want to go to lunch? And the husband says, I don't know, you pick. <laughs> Eat whatever you want. We'll go to whatever tree you want to go to. I don't care. I'm tired of thinking about it. <laughs> this is how it all began. And I'm just going to say it's the man's fault, right? It's the man's fault. We all know that. Amen to that. It's the man's fault. I heard the amen. The wife just said, you say amen. Amen. All right. But the woman, Eve, said, no, no, no. We can eat of any tree of the garden. God didn't say that. But God said we can't eat of this one in the midst of the garden. And then Eve did this. She added her own rule. Oh, yeah, we can't even touch it or we'll die. And at that point, Adam should have said, that's not what he said. But Adam, in his sin, was silent. Eve, sin is already creeping in. 
They haven't even eaten the tree yet, eaten the fruit yet. It's already creeping in. And how's it creeping in? Because the enemy of God goes after the image bearers of God because he can't take out God. So he goes out, not, he goes, he didn't go for Happy the Elephant. He went for even Adam, the only image bearers in the garden. And he's going right at them. And he gives them a half truth, which is a full lie. And it leads her to add a little more. So sometimes our sin is not eliminating things God has said. Sometimes our sin is adding things God never said. Or you touch it, you'll die. The serpent at this point, I think he says, I got her. I got her right there. That's where the hook went in. Serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The enemy offers fake life. Through a rebellious question. And let me just say, it's my opinion that the enemy is not very creative at all, therefore has no new tools in his toolbox, and continues to use the same two lies over and over again. And here's the lies he told Eve. Did God really say, surely not, God's holding out on you. Teenagers, it's the same thing he says to you. Adults, it's the same things he says to you. Did God really say that? Well, most of us don't know what God said. Well, God's holding out on you. If you go to church, you won't have your friends anymore. It won't be fun anymore. You can't party anymore. You can't do this. You can't do that. God's just holding out on you. And so the enemy of God goes to the image bearers of God and attacks the image bearers with this lie and these half-truths. Surely, we wouldn't fall for this again. But it continues. Questions and comments to this new enlightened generation. Surely you're not as old-fashioned, as ignorant as your parents and grandparents. You're much smarter than they are. They didn't know any better. You're enlightened. Maybe they're too conservative in fundamentalism or whatever it might be you want to call it. That's wrong. They're just closed-minded. They didn't know better. You do. You can be like God. Just eat this fruit, Eve. Come on, Adam. God's holding out on you. You know better. And I just want to say that whatever the temptation is that the enemy's offering you and offering your children and offering your friends and offering your family members, it is not new. There is nothing new in the lie. It's the same lie. We're foolish to fall for it over and over, but it's the same lie. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 1, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. You say, well, it's a new way of sin. There's no new sin. There are no new sins that have been invented since that moment. There have been new ways they've been played out and been revealed, but they're not new. In Ezekiel's day, the people of God were divided. Not just like the people of God today divided. They were divided physically. So what happened is you got the people of God, the children of God that are in Jerusalem, they are being disobedient. God is going to discipline them. And so God allows the Babylonians to come in and he, they remove a section of the people, take them back to Babylon as slaves and leave the rest of them there in Jerusalem. So you have two separate groups, children of God, children of Israel. And, and, and Ezekiel was called by God as a prophet, a holy man, a godly man, not perfect, but a godly man seeking to do right. And God chose him to use him as his voice. And Ezekiel is in Babylon with the best and the brightest, as a slave, as a servant. 
And he is given insight through a vision of what's happening back in Jerusalem. We read that in chapter 8. And when Ezekiel the prophet sees what his family members and his his uh, fellow Israelites are doing back in Jerusalem, he is appalled. For what they're doing is they're still going to the temple, but they're bringing in their idols and their false worship with them. And they are, they are uh, blaming God for their predicament. And they're doing what is right in their own eyes. And it's offensive and, and, and nasty. The captive Israelites, on the other hand, the group that's been taken... They're burdened by their circumstances, but they were the cream of the crop. You would think they would know better because they were the smartest and the brightest and the strongest. But they didn't turn to God fully either, and they remained in their defiance. And that makes the work of the prophet even more challenging because everything he says, no one wants to hear. But God says, keep saying it. Now, here are some things as I read chapter 14 that kind of kind of jumped off the page to me, some things that I, I, I hold on to here that I think perhaps maybe God is speaking to us today, so I want to share them with you. And the first thing that is revealed here is that older does not mean wiser. This section begins with the elders coming to Ezekiel, the old people, the old men, the leaders. They're elders, they're older, but they're not wise. They are old, rebellious people. And while... Just having many revolutions around the sun gives you more wrinkles on your face and more calendars in your trash can. It does not always give you wisdom. Just because you're older doesn't mean you're wiser. You may have more experiences than others, but if you don't learn from them, it doesn't make you smarter. Wisdom is not something you can create anyway. Wisdom is not something that you can just kind of gin up within yourself. Wisdom is a gift from God. God spoke to these people and to the prophet clearly because here come the elders. And in verse 2, God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their own hearts and set stumbling blocks of their iniquity before their faces. In other words, what he's saying is, God is saying to the prophet and saying to them, said, these men, these elders, these are the ones young people should look up to. These are the ones the next generation will build off of their model. These are the ones who are fathers and grandfathers and uncles. And they have successfully set up their children for failure because of the model of religiosity they have shown them. These men who claim to be children of God and holy people and righteous people have taken their idols into their own hearts. And have blatantly forsaken the command to have no other God before God. They have justified their sin by, based on their own desires and their own wants. They have modeled for the next generation. Here's what they've modeled because there's much more caught than taught at times. So they have modeled for their children and their grandchildren to come that here's how you abandon God. Here's how you abandon His teachings. Here's how you justify sin and live all for yourself. And here's how you ultimately can destroy a community. Just watch me. And yet, these elders likely wish to blame the next generation for all the problems facing the culture. But we're all complicit. If Adam was complicit in the sin that Eve revealed there in the garden, then our elders are complicit. I'm complicit for the sin 
as well of the next generation. Now, does that mean that, that they are, they are innocent? No, because we are all individually responsible for what we do with God and what we do with Christ. And while the aged may be responsible in this story, they could also be in our story responsible for good teaching and wise things as well. It just happens in this case, these guys did not have wisdom and were not holy and not worth following. But what did they have going for them? They had their AARP cards. And they had discounted meals. And they got to park closer. That's it. We are to respect our elders. If you're going to be pro-life, I'm pro-life from conception. I believe at conception a human being is a human being. So I'm going to fight on this end from conception and birth and anti-abortion and pro-life. That's just where I am. That's where I am. But I can't be on that end and not be pro-life on that end as well. Right? So you can't have it one and not the other. And there is a respect for elders that is biblically required. Let me required here. Let me take you back to Leviticus 19.32. Uh, you shall, it says, you shall stand up for the gray head. Stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. And you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter writes this in verse, uh, 1 Peter 5, 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then the young pastor Timothy, under the leadership of the Apostle Paul, is given guidance, even though he's a young man himself, Paul reminds him in 1 Timothy 5.1, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So just because that these guys in Ezekiel 14 had abandoned their holy stand does not mean that the Christian is to not show respect to his or her elders. We need multi-generational ministry. We kind of have this gimmicky thing going on right now that I pray is more than a gimmick. Where our teenagers go in with our senior adult Sunday school classes once a quarter or so. Where they go and teach children once a quarter or so. Oh, it's fun. They had a great time. When a church's multi-generational connectivity is no longer a gimmick, then we're doing it right. We're just having to gimmick it up front because we've never done it that way before. And I am thankful we are doing that. Because I do know that generations like to hang out with people their own age and own likes. But I also know that's the death of the church. We have a church called Oak Harbor. has about 15 to 20 members. They're all average age, 70, 75. They love the Lord and they wish children would come to their church. The youngest people at our church out there at Oak Harbor is the pastor and his kids. If we do a children's ministry event, Julie might as well just do it in the living room with her own three kids. Because that's the children's ministry. If we were to say to the membership, hey, we want you to plan a family-oriented event, let me just tell you, they will not consider things just like some of our senior adult Sunday school classes would not consider. Our senior adult classes, at no point do you think, do we need child care? If we have that planning, then every event takes place before 5 because we don't want to get out after dark. 
And the work schedule of young families doesn't interact. But let me just throw this on the other end. If we're trying to do something for 30-year-olds, at no point can you hardly ever get beyond. What are we going to do about the kids? Do we have child care available? Are we going to provide child care? Are we going to pay for child care? Is there a children's option? Is everybody going to be together? There is health in being together. And a church that is all one generation or the other generation is a church that will die. If a church is all senior adults, there will be no church in 15 to 20 years there. If a church, because what they're going to miss, they're going to miss the life and the vitality of the next generations. But if a church is the cool guy and he's 30 and everybody in his church is 30 and under, let me tell you what they're missing. They're missing everything anybody over 40 can offer them regarding experience and perhaps wisdom, though it's not automatic. We've got to be very careful when we start thinking of church that we're not thinking about our little small versions of it that disguise themselves as Sunday school classes. But we're the church together for the glory of God and not for our glory or our preferences. The principles are intact. The bigger issue, as we're looking at Ezekiel's word, is that stature is 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 that the older person by virtue and of stature and longevity? Look look at this to my elders in the room. Listen here to me and myself as as well. By virtue of us being older, we often have a far more reaching influence than those who are younger. Just by virtue of being around longer. So just because you're old doesn't mean you're wise. Secondly, just because you're strong doesn't mean you're holy. Let me do this one quickly. The coming, uh, those coming to Ezekiel are supposed to be the best and the brightest because they were the ones chosen out of Israel. And I kind of look at it like recess at elementary school where you're going to have a kickball game and it's just a free for all and the two cool kids get to become captains and so they pick who wants to be, who they want on their team. So you end up picking these two kickball teams, right? It's kickball. It's recess. This is the way it ought to go. So I'm picking him and you'll pick him and you'll pick her and you'll pick and all of a sudden you have your two teams and then there's like ten kids still standing on the wall going, what about us? We got our teams. You guys need to go swing or teeter-totter or whatever you do at recess. Get out of here. You didn't get chosen. We picked the best. We picked the coolest. We picked the nicest. We picked our friends. We picked the strongest. We picked the, the one kid that can kick it over the building. That's who we picked because we wanted the best team. Maybe that's not your experience, but that's my elementary school life. I just want you to know. I was on the swing set. They picked me a couple of times. Oh, he's tall. And it was like, oh, he's just tall. Go swing. So that's all he got going for you. <clears throat> so these are the ones that are picked, but just because they were picked doesn't mean they're holy. Now, here's the danger. They, one commentary says this, and I, I think they're right on, have the same tendency that all of us do, comparative analysis. Comparative analysis will kill us. Because they're looking at their brothers back in Jerusalem going, oh, my goodness, they're taking idols into the temple. At least we're not as bad as them. Can I just say that everybody in this room can think of somebody that's a little worse off than you spiritually probably? And if you're not careful, you will use that person as your reason of why you are the way you are. Well, I may not be the best, but at least I'm not Hitler, right? Uh, I'm not Charles Manson. Uh, I'm not this person on the other side of the pew. Uh, 
Because we like to compare ourselves to others spiritually. At least I'm better than them. They only come to church once a month. At least I come twice. I'm more faithful. I give more. Scripturally, we only have one we're allowed to compare ourselves to. And it's the only one we don't want to compare ourselves to. And that's Jesus Christ himself. And we're like, so yeah, but that's God. We can't do that. And I'm telling you, that's the whole point. You can't, but he did. And just because you're bigger, stronger, picked first, valedictorian, quarterback, uh, head cheerleader, beauty pageant winner, CEO, I don't care what title someone on the planet's given you, doesn't make you holy. At all. Thirdly, and this one kind of, I've been trying to figure out how to word this one, so I'll just go with a poorly worded title. Being present does not mean you're accepted. Or knocking on the door doesn't mean you get to come in. Y'all remember that old painting of Jesus standing at the door and knocking? You know the picture. The very weak-looking white European Jesus with his long hair, his white robe, his blue sash, and he's kneeling like this, knocking at a door, holding a lantern. It's supposed to be a symbol of Revelation 3.20. says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you'd open the door, I'd come in and have dinner with you. And we've often used that verse as a way to say, you know, that's Jesus knocking on your heart. He just wants to come in your heart. Just let him come in. Uh, okay. Unfortunately, Revelation 3 is about a church that's doing church without Jesus. And it's Jesus outside going, hey, you're going to call yourself a church? Let me come in. So that's a sermon for another day. So that's a misappropriation of that. But people like to add it to the Roman road because it sounds good. But let's flip that a little bit. Let's say if we can picture it this way. Let's pretend that God has a big house, which it says he does. John, Jesus said he did. Let's just say for those of you that grew up in youth group in the 90s, it's a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms. It's a big, big yard where you can play football, and there's a big, big table, and that's a terrible song. But nevertheless, he's got his house. So picture Jesus in his big house. And there's the door of the house, and Here's the image. The individual comes to the door. Jesus, I'd like to come in your house. God, I'd like to come in your house. And our cultural Christian response would be, absolutely, all are welcome. Come on in. For God so loved the world. Until you read Ezekiel 14. And the response of God is, you're not coming in. No. Well, that's just not fair. That's just not right. That just seems mean. Huh. Well, it's not mean. It's not unfair. And it is absolutely right. Just because someone shows up to knock on the door doesn't mean God lets them in. Look at it this way. Let's just say you're a parent and you have a prodigal child who's a drug addict. They've been out on the streets. They've run out of money. They want to come home. They still got some drugs on them and paraphernalia. Illegal drugs. I'm not talking legalized. And they call you and say, can I come home? And you say, absolutely, you can come on in. Then they come to the door, and then you say, but wait, 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 wait a minute. You can't bring that in here. Well, but it's my stuff. No, 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 no. You're not bringing your drugs in here. You're not bringing that paraphernalia in here. You're not bringing that stuff in here. You don't love me. No, I love you too much to tell you you can't come in and bring that stuff. You want in? Leave the stuff at the door. The people that are in this passage, God says, 
They have idols in their heart. Now they're saying, oh God, let us come in. And God says, you can come in. But you can't bring that in. But God, at least we're not like our brothers back in Jerusalem. They're bringing idols to the temple. God says the only reason you're not bringing idols to the temple is that you're in Babylon. The temple's in Jerusalem. Your idols are in your heart. You want to come in? you got to repent and leave that at the door. I did two funerals this week. It always takes me back to this passage of Scripture. Some of you were at the funeral. John uh, is writing this. Jesus is with his 12 disciples, and he says this to them. Let not your hearts be troubled. Behold, I, I uh, let not your hearts be troubled. It, it, I go to my Father's house to prepare a place for you. If it were not true, I would have told you. And, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to get you, and I'm going to bring you to be with me. In my Father's house are many rooms. So I just butchered the way it's actually written, but I think you get the gist. Don't let your hearts be troubled. In my Father's house are many rooms. Behold, I go and prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. And so he tells his disciples this story, knowing that he's about to die and go on the cross and and be buried, then resurrect, and then ascend to heaven. And there's a guy in the disciples named Thomas. He gets a bad rap. We call him the doubter. But Thomas is the guy that you went to school with that wasn't afraid to ask the questions no one else would ask during math class. When the teacher's doing something and turns around and says, does everybody get it? And everybody went, yeah, we get it. But there, you know, nobody gets it. But no one's willing to say, I don't understand except Thomas. He goes, teacher, I don't get it. Could you do it again? And everybody else in the class goes, Whew. Glad Thomas wasn't sick today. Thomas then says, speaks up and he says, Teacher, I got a question. Jesus says, What, Thomas? He says, We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way there? And Jesus says, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And if you want to see how this fits into this story, just because you're knocking on the door and says, Let me in, God, let me in, God, I want to come and, and I want to be a part of your family. It's not so much that Jesus is only the way he, he's the door you can't get into the father other than going through the doorway and you can't go through the doorway carrying your idols you can't go through and say i'm just covering all my bases got my buddhism and my hinduism and my other isms and now i got my jesus isms and now i'm going to come on it you can't here's the thing about that doorway it's a narrow door and it's single file only your idols have to be left on the front porch. And oh, by the way, once you go in, the door shuts. You can't go back out and get them. And that's kind of where cultural Christianity misses this. Because cultural Christianity is good old boy Jesus, and everybody can come in. Everybody can come in. Oh, the, the ground is flat at the foot of the cross. And none of that is wrong. You're just not part of the family of God if you come to him on your own terms. You're not a Christian if the God you're coming to is the one you created. The scriptural reality is this. You're welcome into my family, the Father says. But there's only one way in, and it's through my Son. And when you come through my Son, you have to repent of all those idols. And let me just say, every idol, whether it's a little statue or it's something else... Every idol that is mentioned in Scripture that is relevant in our world today is nothing more than self-worship. So you can't worship yourself and worship God. Die to self. Live for God.